That's Isaiah, the first chapter, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 10. The word of our God. Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. As far as the reading of God's word. Indeed, may we know his rich blessings under it this evening. I think it's right for me to begin by saying this evening that, that once again you and I encounter a text like we did last Lord's Day evening that is a heavy text. Certainly a text that is supposed to search us. It's a text that's supposed to lay us bare before the Lord. But it's also a text, as we've said all along, that comes to us and urges us not to imagine alternative realities. But it comes to us urging us to have our vision corrected. The analogy that we've used from the start certainly applies to this text as well. In this moment, the prophet comes to us and he hands us the pair of glasses that you and I need. Because we don't see it right. We may think, friend, that that we measure things in a reasonable way. But friend, as a text like this so often reminds us that we misperceive. We don't see as we ought to see. And so while this text is heavy, it is certainly supposed to be corrective as well. It's supposed to come like a great optician, and and showing us what really is in front of us. And our prayer ought to be that the Lord would use this text under the ministry of his Spirit this evening to do just that. Friend, all of us under this word this evening certainly, certainly require this correction. Now as we take up this text, it's important for me to remind you where we are. This first chapter, of course, is an introduction to the entirety of Isaiah's prophecy. Here you have, as it were, something of a digest of all the great theological themes that you and I will encounter in the subsequent 65 chapters. This first chapter then provides for us truly an initiation into that which the Word of God conveys 
to the generation which it was first given, and of course, to all of the generations subsequent. And it begins, this summary, with an indictment. If you look back again to the second verse, you'll see that there is something of a formula that carries over to our text. Here, he says in the second verse, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, come to our text, starting the tenth verse, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. And so what you see here is that now we have left that indictment that we've taken up in the previous Lord's days and come to something new. Here we have an indictment that's not addressed to heavens and earth, but to rulers and to people alike. Now as we take up these five verses this evening, you'll notice that that tenth verse is an exhortation. It's not purely formulaic. It is there truly as a command. And then in verses 11 to 14, you have the indictment. You have God pleading his case against Judah, the visible church underage. And then in verse 15, you have her sentence. Now, as we hold these three components together, what do we find? Well, friend, in order to answer that question, I need to recall what we've said before about this particular age in church history. That is, the days of Uzziah. I said to you before that the days of Uzziah were days, generally speaking, that we might classify as Reformation. No, it wasn't total. The high places remained in Judah, but but much of the corruption that previous generations knew were not repeated. In general terms, the elements and the liturgy that God had established was observed and was observed even in the manner in which God had prescribed. But as you look at this text, you'll notice that the Lord God, first of all, draws attention to her worship. What we'll see here, friend, is that this indictment is not because of any innovations, any novelty that this generation introduced into the worship of God. That's not why God comes to them in the way that he does in our text. No, the Lord addresses this church in this way, not because of the externals of her worship, the elements of her liturgy, but because her worship was formal. It's important for me to define what I mean by that at the start. It's an older term, a term that our forebears would have used quite often. And by formal, they did not mean a kind of of carefulness, a kind, of, a kind of care that one would have as they were coming into a meeting of importance. That's how we often use the word formal. No, the idea of formality here is that that is opposed to what you find, for instance, in First Timothy, distinguished from the power of godliness. There, Paul describes those who had a form of godliness, but lacked its power. That is, they looked the part. In terms of externals, they seemed to be okay, but but the apostle there tells them that they lacked those true, those inward graces that belong to real and vital godliness. And so formal worship is that worship that is rendered to God that externally seems pure, but is without heart. It is formal, but without the power of godliness. And friend, that is the cause of this indictment this evening. 
He does not reprove her for innovations. He doesn't reprove her for bringing something new into his worship. Here he reproves the church because she did not bring him her heart. I want you to notice something that's quite striking about this. What's striking, friend, is that though you and I have seen the sinfulness of this church in two ways, both under blessing and adversity in the previous indictment, we have not yet, we have not yet found the prophet name any particular sins. He's spoken in the most general ways about Judah's defection until now. First, in order, before he comes to any, any arraignment with regard to the second table of the law, first in order, God cites this sin, her formal worship, makes this lead all of the others for which she will be rebuked. And from what this teaches us then, And this is the moment where the spectacles really need to be put on. Because I would submit to you that our generation doesn't see what this text teaches. What the prophet teaches us in this way is that formal worship is a highly provoking sin. Formal worship is a highly provoking sin. I want us to see that under three headings. I want us to see, first of all, the essence of formal worship. Then I want us to see its effrontery to God. And then finally, I want us to see its evil in terms of its effects. So very briefly, I want us to take up the essence. As the prophet describes for us what this aberration in worship is. And as you look at the 10th verse, you'll notice that you have those two clauses that fit the formula of verse 2. He says, give ear unto the law of our God. Now that's quite striking. It's quite striking because... You find here the word word set opposed to the word law. In the Hebrew, it's the word devar as opposed to the word Torah, which you and I know well. But I want you to notice what the prophet is doing there. By citing here the law of God, he is saying that God has legislated his worship. As the prophet begins to describe the aberrations, the defection that Judah has made in the worship of God, he reminds her that the standard upon which she is judged is nothing less than the law of God. And what follows is simply an application of the divine law. Now as you move here down throughout this text, you'll notice a question that's quite striking. He says, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Now what's striking about that, of course, is that, of course, God required Judah to come before him, to appear before him in the manner in which he had prescribed, and again externally in the manner in which Judah, in fact, did worship God. So why the question? Why ask, who hath required this at your hand? if Judah was required by God to worship him? Friend, the answer to that lies in the manner of address found in verse 10. He says, he calls them rulers of Sodom and people of Gomorrah. Now these are Judahites. We know that ethnically speaking. But but what is the prophet doing here? 
Friend, under inspiration of God's Spirit, the prophet is calling them not by their ethnicity, but if you will, by their spiritual condition. And now when he asks this question, who hath required this of your hand? It's as though he's asking, when has God asked a Sodomite or a Gomorrahite to tread his courts? Is this not for the people of God? Is it, was it not the peculiar privilege of Israel to have these ordinances? Who has required the Gomorrahite, the Sodomite, to approach in this way? You see what the prophet is doing here quite powerfully. He is distinguishing an internal versus an external right. Use the language of our forebears. Externally, they had a right and even an obligation as Israel to, to come near to God. But, but internally, that is in their inmost being, well, friend, they, as we'll see in short order, had repudiated that call. They were still obliged, but certainly not worthy. But what does he describe their approaches then as? He calls them vain oblations. You'll see that in the text. And how are we supposed to understand that? Well, friend, again, he does not cite here any innovations in the elements or liturgy. He says here something that's characteristic about the manner of their sacrifice. He says they're vain. Scripturally speaking, vanity here is the word for empty. They bring so many things. But here the Lord says they're but a shell. They lack true substance. They are empty. They're heartless. They have a form of worship. But friend, only a form. They are nothings. And what this text teaches us then, friend, is that formal worship is an unspiritual use of the means, an empty, heartless use of the means of grace. And just briefly, friend, I want us to see how the scriptures describe this for us elsewhere. First of all, this can be done tacitly. When folks approach the means of grace, not only the public, but especially the public means, in a way that is unspiritual, this indictment applies. For example, take what you find in the second chapter of Jewel. God expressly enjoins a spiritual approach to him when he says, Rend your heart and not your garments. Solemn days of humiliation are indeed an act of devotion to God. But note what there the prophet says. The heart of this work is your heart. Let, let, your, let your garments be rent no matter how great. Allow, allow dust and ashes to cover you. But if your hearts are not rent, there, there is no real devotion here. Or take what we find in a longer form from Isaiah 58. The Lord there expostulates with Judah. He says, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. But then note, note what he says. Using their words, he says, Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast, ye find pleasure. 
and exact all your labors. Know what the Lord is saying there. They had a form of approach to God. They looked the part, but he says here at the end of the day, all of their humiliation was formulaic. All of their humiliation was empty ritual. It was the very kind of worship that here the Lord God expostulates with Judah, indicts her for conducting. The friend, this takes even in a more overt form throughout the scriptures as well. Take what you have from the harlot in Proverbs 7. Speaking of the young man, it says there, she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Note what there the Proverbs are telling us. Yes, even in the Old Covenant, there were those who thought that they could bargain with God to allow for their sin by simply engaging in the formula of worship. As it were, they could tick the religious box and then live as they list. Another example, of course, is the generation of Jeremiah, a generation that said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They made a boast of the worship of God. But as, again, the prophet so often reminds them, they were deceitful people. They did not approach them, him with their hearts. Friend, that's the essence of this formal worship that is here being arraigned. It has all of the external accoutrements of true devotion to God, but it's not. It looks like a reformed church. It looks like a church that, that is indeed a people who seek the Lord. But a people who have left their hearts behind them in their devotion. Who, if they could, would check their souls at the door. But I want us to see, friend, how not only does the prophet give us a picture of this kind of approach to God, but, but he also shows us its guiltiness, its effrontery. And that's what you have at the, set, the last line of verse 13, where there the Lord says, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. And friend, what you're supposed to see there is that this is quite emphatic. This is not only sin, but it's a highly provoking sin to God. And you see that, of course, in the fact that this is how the prophet leads. As the inspired penman, this is where the prophet begins when he begins to show Judah her defection. What you see here then, friend, is that unspiritual worship is indeed an abomination. That's exactly what the scriptures say. In Proverbs 15, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And why so? Well, friend, just take, for, just take for a moment what the ordinances of the gospel convey to men. First of all, it's supposed to set before them a picture, a picture that is ordained by God of his glory. You remember in Leviticus 10, speaking there to, Levi, to, to the sons of Levi, he says, this is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. Writing on that particular verse, one of our forebears says thus. He says, then when thou drawest nigh to him, there he will be sanctified. 
either in thee or upon thee. If thou refuse to give him glory in his service, believe it. He will get himself glory by thy suffering. Friend, this is not a small thing. It's not a small thing, and we shouldn't see it as a small thing when you look at at what we will in just a moment's time. The Lord regards this formal and this heartless worship as a highly aggravated sin. It is a truncating, as it were, of that which is supposed to most manifest to men the glory of our God. But also, friends, we think of the fact that these ordinances are there to set before us a picture of divine grace. When men and women approach without their hearts, when they sit under the offers of grace tendered to them through Jesus Christ, but will not join with faith what they hear, friend, they're only making a mockery of every offer. They're like rebels who are seeking pardon at least in appearance, all the while, their their work of treason, their plans of usurpation are written on their forehead. My friend, that is the effrontery, but what is the effect? And just briefly, that's what you have there given to us in the 15th verse. There the Lord says, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. That is a dreadful statement in the scriptures. When you consider in Psalm 65 that God is pleased to be called the hearer of prayer, friend, it's a staggering thing whenever he says, I will not hear when such a people pray. Take Proverbs 1.28, a text that we, I'm sure, know well. They call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Friend, what you and I find in this text is that God is quite serious in dealing with this particular sin. And he brings his sentence upon it with the most staggering of terms. He says that your crying out to me will be ineffectual. And then, friend, he seconds that with this. He says, your hands are full of blood. And you're supposed to see those two clauses joined together, and you're supposed to see it in this way. They have professed to draw near to the ordinances of the gospel. They made some kind of external approach to God, but God says still, notwithstanding all of that, your hands are full of blood. In other words, friend, these ones will go, and they will return in the same condition as they went. What this shows us, friend, is that unspiritual worship then is ineffectual. And for us to see that very briefly, we need to remember, friend, what you and I ordinarily may expect as we approach God. Take Psalm 48. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. Friend, there you're supposed to see the people of God are relishing, enjoying something of God's loving kindness as they approach him in corporate worship. Take Psalm 65. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house. This meditation is not purely intellectual. It's satiating. Take Psalm 42. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise. It's supposed to enliven and enlighten them. To bring them to a position of joy. And then, friend, you even find in Psalm 73 that this is the place 
where God is pleased to produce repentance. He says, after envying the wicked one, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. And not only is that true in the Old Covenant, but you remember, friend, the Apostle says that's to be the ordinary experience even in the New Covenant. He says, in this public assembly, the secrets of his heart, that's the unbeliever, is made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. As the Apostle says to the church in Thessalonica, he says, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. Friend, those are the ordinary ways in which the scriptures describe the experience of God's people. And what's so staggering about our text is the Lord says, these ones will find quite the opposite. Again, you notice here, he does not cite even the innovations that were present, such as the the altars on several hills about Judah, He cites here their vain offerings, their empty offerings, and he says to all of that, friend, though they ought to have expected good from the hand of God, they'll find find that he will not hear. And they'll find in the end that they'll remain as they came. A friend, we've said already that these themes are heavy. And certainly they are. And these themes are supposed to search us. And so the first question we could ask of ourselves as we leave a text like this is, friend, do we come to appear before God? What I mean by that is not that do we, do we come here on the Lord's Day and, are, and make ourselves present and seen. But do we come here mindful that this is the nearest approach that we will have to God on this side of the grave? Do we carry ourselves and prepare ourselves as those who are going to meet with the living God? The generation who received this indictment did not. And so they received this indictment unjustly. But we can go a step further, can't we? Friend, how was it that these ones were supposed to approach? What is a spiritual approach to God? The answer to that really lies in in what we said this morning. That when we take up John 4, you remember that, that there Christ urges this woman to see that only a spiritual approach to God is indeed an approach to the living God. That is, only is it the case that one who is believingly approaching God, that is, with a a soul that has been made alive and so exercising faith on Christ, only is that approach a true approach to the God who is spirit. And so, friend, do we come here this evening looking to Christ in that way? This generation did not. And for that, friend, as the text tells us, They would go to the temple where they should have meditated on the loving kindness of God. Where they should have been filled with his joy and the goodness of his house. When they should have found there the works of of repentance furthered and, and found there as well much assurance. They find instead that they leave as they came. Their hands were full of blood. And so they left with their crimson stained palms. 
As heavy, friend, as this text is, there is comfort here that we can't miss. And it lies in the fact that that this 15th verse shows us negatively what you and I may expect, should expect, should we come holding to Jesus Christ. Should we make our approaches to God in faith? Then, friend, note, friend, that the opposite of what you find in verse 15 is what indeed is promised to you. First of all, he says here that their prayers of this generation will be ineffectual. But friend, if they approach like Abel, believingly and holding to Jesus Christ, the substance, then this text clearly indicates that their prayer will be heard. Moreover, as you look at the end of that 15th verse, he says that your hands are full of blood. But as you look down through the following text, you'll notice that God offers to cleanse even crimson-stained hands. And for those who approach God through Jesus Christ by faith, find that as well. They find cleansing. They find healing here as they approach God through his Son. As we take these five verses together, then friends, certainly this is an exhortation for you and I to think much of our approaches to God, in private as well as public. Friend, the Lord marks those who come near to him. As Swinnick had mentioned before, the Lord especially, especially is concerned with the heart of those who draw near. And so we are to think much of how we approach him. But secondly, we are to study that we are to study the way to approach him that is the only spiritual way. Again, referring back to John 4, it is only looking to Jesus Christ by faith that you and I may approach the living God aright. A text like this urges us to be mindful, friend, that even this evening, even this evening, not only does the Lord make a narrow inspection of you and I and how we approach him, but to those who approach him aright, for those who, who come humbly, looking to Jesus Christ, and friend, the Lord holds out to them, to you, the opposite of what he promises in verse 15, that he will receive you, and that you will find pardon. You will find cleansing. And so while, friend, this is hard, these themes heavy, the text reminds us to make much of our approaches to God, to not treat it as a small thing, to never make it formulaic. And even, friend, in a text like this, we're reminded that should we do so, rather, should we approach in faith, and, friend, our approaches to him we should have the greatest expectation that will meet with grace. And so may we come through the Lord Jesus Christ in this way and for his own namesake. Amen.